but the analogy that came to mind, it's like he's built a new car and he just, he doesn't know how to drive it yet. And he's also not seemingly enjoying it. However, he was acting previously. There was this unbridled joy and excitement and exuberance he had on court, even though we saw the, the, the car wrecks he was causing, but I'm not seeing that right now. And I think I'm hoping it's just time to get used to the new car. But it, it was great to have him back in the mix, but it just seemed like something's holding back. Connor, I couldn't agree more. I was actually going to bring up that myself, and you put it way more eloquently than I could. I was going to say he looked neutered in spade. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm with you on that one, Connor. It's a good job we've got the uh, the options to edit some of this uh, conversation because we'll be taking that out, Bill. Rest assured. About to leave. Already packing, come with me. I'm not really asking. We'll get away to a place where we don't know. What about this? This call is being recorded. Fans, we are back for another edition of the Roundup, catching up with the weekly headlines, results, and news from the professional tour and college squash. I'm Connor Malley, joined by Bill Buckingham, but. I know Bill's very excited about this. I'm so excited. We're back with PJ Paul Johnson calling in from the UK. PJ, how are you? Oh, that's that's very touching. Lovely intro, Connor, as always. Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Uh, all good here. Thank you. Yeah, just got back from a 10-day trip to the US. I was over for a JCT event at Squash Zone in San Francisco. Full credit and kudos to... Richard Elliott and uh, Ashley and Blake over there done a terrific job with the club. There's been four new renovated courts added on to the pre-existing building. Absolutely brilliant event run there. And then followed that on with four or five days in Philadelphia, carrying on working with Devon and Christopher Lee. It's a family I've been working with for about 18 months now. So tied that in as well. So it was a great trip. Yeah, it was good to be back in the US and finally back home in, in London, three days in with no signs of jet lag. So all good in the hood. I am absolutely thrilled to have you here, PJ, as uh, I lament every time you're not here, just like, where's PJ? Miss you so much. And uh, I'd be remiss if I didn't offer you congratulations on your new position as the director of membership for England Squash. So congratulations on that. <laughs> that, that would be my nemesis and uh, partner in crime, Mr. Joey Barrington. That wouldn't be me. Oh, oh. So, so what have you been doing all this time? I shot a 74 this afternoon. At- <laughs> uh, do you need me to carry on? Oh, no, I figure I figure as much. I appreciate you being here, taking the time. I know it, it's Connor and I and I have pushed on without you. I don't know if you've listened to any of the shows. Of course, we've had some. And what? What? Go ahead. Tell me just the topic of one of the shows since you've last been on. I've absolutely, absolutely not. But I've uh, no doubt you were very nasty about me in my absence. Because <laughs> he's been somewhat controlled, I, I'll, yeah. I'll give him that. Just I think deep longing is what I can say. Uh, yeah. Speaking of golf, PJ, did you check out? Um, there was just funny random things yesterday on on the uh, the DP tour, like the 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 uh, the European tour. Yeah. Um, did you see the guy? His name was um, jo- I'm going to pronounce it Joyce Juiced Lewin. I think I pronounced his name. Yeah. He, he was angry after hitting a ball out of play on a tee shot. And then as he was walking up, I believe it was like the 11th fairway in anger, he threw his driver, the offending club into a tree and it got stuck in the tree. Did you see the video of that? I've seen it. I've heard about it. And then he proceeded, he couldn't get it down. So he proceeded to throw two more clubs up in the tree to try to knock it down. And both of those clubs also got stuck in the tree. <laughs> oh <laughs> my gosh. That's exactly the thing I would do. It was so funny. And it's funny because he, he was at first laughing about it and the, and the crowd was laughing about it. And then he got angry and kicked his bag. And then he tried to jump and tried to pull one of the limbs to shake the tree. And he came like just about six feet short, like me trying to touch a basketball rim right now. He came up about six feet short of actually touching the rim, just showing that, that golfers are not athletes. So it was very humorous. But, but welcome back. We're excited to have you here. All is good uh, here in the U.S. We're going to jump right into the PSA roundup. The PSA Tour just finished a actually a very interesting tournament for a few reasons in Singapore. We had two things that happened besides the normal Ali Farag winning the tournament, which seems to be an everyday thing at this point. We had the Shirbagi brothers playing each other one more time in a, a quarterfinal. And then we had the Gillis sisters playing each other in a final. Two Belgian sisters, the first gold championship for Nela, the first gold finals for, for Tina. 
So pretty exciting stuff. So the, we'll get into the Farag dominance shortly, but if you guys, will you guys indulge me for a second while I give you a quick recap of the Nella Gillis match, the Nella Gillis, Tinny Gillis final? Would that be okay if I did that? This I, is was, I was just stunned by you actually asking us for a thing. We didn't have a response. <laughs> Normally you just do what you want. That was the hesitation. Bill, uh, okay. by all means, give us the report. Okay, so here we go. And this is journalism at its finest, by the way. So this is not, I, just to be totally open and honest, I did not write this report. So I'm just going to read this report too and see what you guys think. You ready? Here we go. And this is a squash website reporting unbiasedly on a match. So just listen. And, and the, just it's just phenomenal writing. And I, I just couldn't get over it. So here we go. Nayla started the better of the two as she got to work pinning Tine to the back corners early in the match, making sure her sister was as far back in the court before sending the ball short. This worked well as Tine looked to be getting increasingly frustrated in the proceedings as she lost the opening two games, 11-6, 12-10. Despite looking physically tired at the end of the second game, Tine returned to the court with a fighting spirit determined to give her a better account of herself and get stuck into the match. More followed from Timmy as she could see Nele was struggling to cope with the patterns of play she was producing. Tine couldn't miss as she relentlessly attacked the corners of the court. As a panicked Nele looked back at her fiancé and world number four, Paul Call, for answers. The wisdom from Call in between the fourth and fifth game looked to have been crucial for Nele as she got off to a perfect start in the fifth game. Despite Tine clawing her way back to 4-5, Nelly put a string of positive rallies together and movement to test the movement of a fading Tine, who couldn't register another point as Nayla romped to the title, the biggest of her career. That was story time by Squash Site. Are you serious? Like, how could that be their match report? Who wrote that? I have no idea. I watched that whole match. There was like, that match was really good. And there were some really good points. And they glossed over everything. They glossed over the fact that at one love, Tene was down 10-8 two-game balls that would have put it up 2-0. And she fought back, and then they had the best two rallies of the match for the last two points of that game. And that game set the tenor for the rest of it because Nayla was gassed. Tene came back, won two games after that. Tene was gassed, and Nayla came back and won her fitness proving. But that is a squash site article, and it's journalism like that. I don't think we'll ever get into the Olympics because of stuff like that. To be honest. <laughs> I was interested because I wanted to get some details because I had watched the match, but I had watched it like more than 24 hours ago, and I'm 60, so I forget easily. So I just wanted a little refresher on the big points. And I read that. And when I got to the part where she said she looked back to her fiance for inspiration. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> my God, who is writing this stuff? It just it is absolutely brutal. But either way, congratulations. It was a fun match to watch. Good, good stuff by Nayla, her biggest win of her career. And she got the little uh, the rundown boost because we talked about her abs last week and how impressive they were. <laughs> and that, I'm sure, sparked her to victory. Congratulations to Nayla. And also, Nayla, shout out because of your abs. And my insp you're inspiring me. I have done an extra 30 seconds of planks and an extra 10 sit-ups every morning since I saw your abs on Squash Site. So thank you. Thank you, Nella. <laughs> did you watch any of this? Did you get a chance to check this out, PJ? I didn't. I just saw the result. Saw that yeah. it went the distance. Um, Tinner's obviously closing the gap from a level standpoint, but that's... You got to hand it to Naylor, really. The, the, she's one of those players, one of the very few players, in my opinion, who is doing a great job of maximising her potential. She's gone up to, I think, a career high of number four now. Is it first time ever we got a Belgian yeah. player inside the top five? I think Stefan Castellan was the highest ever before that at number seven, way back in the wow. day. So with Naylor taking on that, that mantle is a terrific uh, credit and a, an achievement for her. Um, and you could just see that the shape that she's in physically is one of the hardest working, especially in the ladies game or the female game on the tour. And it's great to see her reaping some of the rewards of that hard work. I, I got to interview her briefly in Philadelphia. Um, she's a super sweet girl, really nice girl. Once you get to know her, she comes across quite shy and quite quiet, but a really nice girl to chat with. And, and it's great to see her having some success. I know we talk a lot about the hard work that she's put in and her ranking now almost catching up to the caliber she's been playing at, but that also shows how challenging it can be to to move up the rankings to the top echelon, right? Yeah. I look back over the past year of her results. So she played roughly 17 or 18 tournaments, depending when I started counting this, but three rounds of 16, seven quarterfinalists, three semifinalists, two finalists and two winners. Brilliant. Like that really Brilliant. is. And it's all in the space just, of about 18 months, right? The, the turnaround in her career, I think since 2021, I don't think she'd made 
latter stages of, of some of the, the top tiered events. So the, that for her to be not laying dormant for so long, but to, to be so quiet for such a lengthy period of time and then it all to come to fruition for her is another good example to anybody out there who is pursuing a career in the game because results aren't always uh, instant and dogged determination, hard work and dedication have now brought her to her highest ever world ranking and um, it's great to see that, to see that kind yeah. of that hard work rewarded. From your perspective, there's obviously we can see a lot of the changes and the results on court and what that transpires into the rankings and performance. But what else do you think is with someone who has gotten to this level, what do you think we're missing that isn't obvious to the person watching at home? With somebody like Naila, what's quite underrated is, and what's developed in her game is her creativity and her variation. There was a period where she would rely purely on retrieving and just trying to get the ball back and, and using that physical attribute that she has. But now something that she's worked on very hard with uh, Robert Owen is if you look at her movement off of the tee and getting herself into a position so early to give herself so much variation and an option, choice of shot and options has made her a little bit harder for her opponents to read given the fact that she's into position early with time on the ball and, and choices of shot to play, her quality of shot has also improved. I think before there wasn't... I think that's an aspect of her game that I don't think had ever really been explained to her, the, the importance of trying to get yourself into a, a position on the court where the ball is in a certain area that to give yourself two or three different shot options. I don't think that was ever taught to her. I think that's something that Rob has brought to Tina and there's to Naylor, sorry, and Paul as well, and a lot of the players that work with Rob. I think that's something that's that's quite apparent with all of his players. And I think that's what we see with Naylor now. I think when you're going through those kind of changes, you have to go to extremes where things feel quite manufactured and a little bit unrealistic. Now that's settled down a little bit and it's more natural for her. You can tell that there's an element of calmness and a relaxation in her play. Whereas before it was a bit more frantic and a bit more chaotic, whereas now there, there seems to be a much more clear vision and an idea of what she's actually trying to achieve on the court. So you look at her speed and her agility compiled with her improved ball control, she's making herself a much harder opponent for the top players to try and break down and beat. And she's also doing a very good job of dismantling the players that are just below her. So she's in a really good place right now, I would say. I think she just, I, I think for her, she does have a win against Sherbini and she has one win, I think back, it was the British Open, maybe against Hamami back in 19. But I think she needs more consistent wins against those top three to elevate herself into that conversation. She did beat Gina Kennedy in the semis, but otherwise the draw for this event wasn't, it wasn't a, a platinum level draw by any means. She has, she has yet to beat Gohar and has one win against the other top two. So yeah. we still, we're still waiting for someone <laughs> who could break in and consistently play, play if not win, then play really close matches against those top three. Yeah, true, Bill, but I will say that you are an extremely hard taskmaster. You're talking about three of the best players in the world sure. who uh, have taken the game to new heights that we haven't seen in the last 15, 20 years as well. So the women's game is, a str- is stronger than it has ever been. So... The fact that somebody like Naila Gillis is even in the conversation amongst those top three, I think will be a massive credit to her. Where can she push on from here? Who knows? The more exposure she can get and court time with the likes of the three that you're talking about is only going to aid her cause. So needless to say, her hard work and dedication will continue. So she will be hot on the heels of those players. So where that can take her to, we'll have to wait and see. But two years ago, Naila Gillis wouldn't have even been in the conversation. So the fact that she's here where she is now is a massive testament to her and hard work. Yeah, just fair, fair enough. I was just looking at it, well, looking at the rankings this morning and seeing the distance between those top three yeah. and the rest of the players is pretty startling. So, And then you look at it, not only on paper, but on the court until she proves otherwise, there still is a massive distance, right? Yeah, I mean, look, we have that in generations of the game, don't we? We talk about the golden 
era of the men's game with Jahangir Janshir, Rodney Ditz and those kind of guys. That, that top eight at that particular time had a similar gap between themselves and the rest of the field as well, Bill. So you do get these stages in the, the game where you'll have your top three or four and then all of a sudden there is a, a bit of a drop-off with the chasing pack. I, I guess I guess. From, from my perspective, I'm, I just think that the ladies game, I've said this before on the podcast, that the ladies game now is becoming so much more watchable and at times for me is, is more enjoyable, more watchable than some of the men's games. And it's, it's exciting viewing now because the, there's the unpredictability about it, but the quality also has been driven up so high because of your likes of Walili and Shabini and Gohar and Hamami and those kind of players. Yeah, I, I was going to make the same comment. I, I've, we said it before, but just it was such so um, such a joy watching them play this weekend. Something, something and, and it was great to see Gina Kennedy also back out there. I think she having someone like that in the mix really is just she's just such a fierce competitor, but also so sweet. Nelly the same way. Both of them can be as fierce as anyone on competing on the tour. And then so generous since the sportsmanship and friendly. Yeah. yeah. So what I'm looking for is for two, a few more women to step up and, and break into that upper echelon. There's Amanda, obviously, right on the precipice of it. But we're going to about to lose Sarah Jane Perry, I'm guessing anyways, right? Her, she's at the tail end of her career. Yeah. She ran to the semifinals here. But again, the draw wasn't, wasn't very difficult for that. And Joelle King injured. Yeah. Little worried about that because, again, also someone who's at the tail end of her career need a few of the women who are a little bit farther down in the rankings to step up. A Rowan L. Robbie and a, a, a Georgina Kennedy, as Connor mentioned. Yeah, listen, it's just a matter of time before Amina Orphy breaks into the top ten. We all know what's coming there. Um, you'd like to see the likes of maybe Sabrina Sobi step up to the mark a little bit, um, but there are there is a cluster, a whole cluster of players, young players that waiting the time to break through. But I also think you've got to give a lot of credit to some of the coaches out there. You've got the likes of El Hindi, Greg Gautier now involved, Rod Martin, uh, Rob Owen, those guys are doing some good work with some of the lady uh, female players now. So I think that's why we're seeing this increase in pace and quality amongst especially the top players is because they're receiving world-class coaching. That's why I think the level now is where we're seeing it because of that the inclusion of this type of level of quality of coaching as well. Wouldn't you think it would be fair for, obviously Rob Owen has taught Nella a lot. You could tell her just her game overall has improved and what he's done for her racket game. Shouldn't she do that for his ab game? <laughs> You'll have to leave that to somebody a bit more of an expert. But uh, Okay, just, I'm just curious. Yeah. Maybe they could have a, quid have a trade-off or something like that. Trade of some kind. Yeah. <laughs> Before we move on, let's quickly jump back to the men because Mustafa Sal is back in the mix and it's hard not to bring him up in this and taking down Paul Cole getting to the semifinals playing Diego. I, I'll jump in with my quick, just I guess from a fan perspective, it's great seeing him back in the tour, but he just doesn't seem as comfortable on court. I think his movement is, obviously you can see by the number of lets going on, the amount of effort he's put in is notable. I think it's far more clean. But the analogy that came to mind, it's like he's built a new car and he just he doesn't know how to drive it yet. Yeah. And he's also not seemingly enjoying it. However, he was acting previously. There was this unbridled joy and excitement and exuberance he had on court, even though we saw the, the, the car wrecks he was causing. But I'm not seeing that right now. And I think I'm hoping it's just time to get used to the new car. But it, it was great to have him back in the mix. But it just seemed like something's holding back. Connor, I couldn't agree more. I was actually going to bring up that myself and you put it way more eloquently than I could. I was going to say he looked neutered in spade. <laughs> that's what it reminded me of a dog who used to run around, hop around, be all enthusiastic and crazy. And then he gets neutered in spade. And next he's like laying in the corner, just sleeping all the time. And that's what Asal reminds me of now is, but your car analogy obviously was much yeah, I'm, better. I'm so with you on that one, Connor. It's a good job. We've got the the options to edit some of this conversation because we'll be taking that out, Bill, rest assured. Uh, he, he's playing with fear right now. I think there's, there's still just so much. He's been under the microscope and he's been literally dragged through the bushes and everything he does is being scrutinised, uh, not always fairly, in my opinion. In actual fact, of late, quite unfairly. I think he's being prejudged in a lot of uh, situations. But, Connor, I, I tend to agree with you as well. I think it's just a matter of time before he figures it out. There's no doubting his ability, his talent and what he brings 
to the game. He's massively needed. I just hope that he maintains his love and his passion for the sport because with too much yeah. negativity around him, uh, it wouldn't be an impossible situation where he just gets so fed up and pissed off that he walks away from the game. And I just hope that never happens because when he's on and when he gets it right, there's I don't think anybody can get near him. But he just needs to figure out this, like you say, this new way, which he will. He's putting some good, some new people around him, some good people around him. And I think collectively they'll bring him to where he needs to be. And let's not forget, he's just reached a, a semi-final. He's been out of the game for three months now. If, you, yeah. if you're not match sharp and you're not tournament ready to come back into that kind of level of competition, and he's already taken down Paul Carr, world number four, and he's challenged Elias, who's world number two. Let's be realistic about the guy. He's, he's been away for 12 weeks. Yeah. I was trying to think of what other player, but it was reminding me of, and it was actually a little bit of Diego. And what I mean by that was Diego jumped on the scene and he was very young. All of this expectations of he's going to be world number one. And it took way longer for him to get where he is now. Like now, Diego, just with how far he's gone in his rankings, like it's a, it, the expectation is he should be reaching finals or for sure semifinals. And so I wonder if that's with Mustafa's age being so young. I mean, he could basically hover around here and in two or three years still have a 10 year run yeah. and be 32. Yeah. So that's the thing there, there, there is no rush with Mustafa. He's absolutely burst his way onto the tour, literally blitzkrieged everybody taken the whole world by a surprise and by storm. And now he's at this phase where he's had to recalibrate and assess his game, go away and work on the areas that need addressing. And at 22 years of age, is he now 22? As you yeah. said, he's got another at least another 10 years. Whether he will continue to play for 10 years with the way that he moves and the way that he's built, we'll have to wait and see. Time will only tell. But he's he's still really at the bottom of his climb up the mountain. He's, he's nowhere near his potential, uh, I don't feel. So... Then lost in all of this is Ali Farag's dominance, right? We, we, we are talking about Mustafa Sal, and it just shows what a presence he is on the tour. Yeah. But in the end, Ali Farag dismantled Diego Alias, the number two player in the world in the final. Yeah. And Farag's just monster year just continues, right? He is the most dominant player, male player we've seen on the PSA tour in a long time. Yeah, and he's proved it time and time again. What's that, six, six or seven of the last eight or nine events that he's won? His record against Diego is almost becoming similar to Nicole David and Jenny Duncalf. That was like a 30 and one head to heads. You got Nick Matthew and James Wilstrop. It was about 22 and four or something. Just a complete, he's got Diego's number. And we talked about this a few, a few events ago. You, you can't help but feel it's also like back in the days of Chris Dittmar and Jan Khan, where it wouldn't matter which route these players had taken through to the final. By the time they got there, just the heavier frame and the body of Elias, Farag just seems to know how to neutralise and put him into such a state of physical discomfort that Elias, he got the perfect start again, Elias. He won the first game, but Farag just knows that if he can extend the game long enough... Elias just cannot maintain it. And we've seen yet another similar result to the last few times they played. And that's going to be a real challenge for Diego to get himself so fit that particular situation doesn't happen. But I just remember from experiences in my era as well, when you go on court with certain players, you just knew that they had their number. Even if you were feeling a little bit off of your best, you knew that it was going to take something pretty special for you to not end up beating them. And that's what we're seeing with, with uh, Diego and, and Farag. But Bill, you're right. The, the way that Farag has come back since this US Open just over 14 months ago is just an absolute, um, it's a miracle. Overall, the atmosphere at the tournament was, and obviously none of us were there, but watching on TV, there was fan, very few fans watching for the most part until we got to the finals. There were more photographers there than anything. If you watch the the semis, there were 12 photographers at the front yeah. wall at one point. <laughs> 12. I'm not, not quite sure what they were all talking. But the the other, the the Connor trophy file, Connor, the trophies were very cool for that tournament. They were. 
Ali Farag's speech at the end, and I'm not going to touch on the political part of it, which is he, he has been talking about Palestine in that situation for some time now. But the other part of his speech, which I find very funny, I think it's every tournament he's won uh, in his run here. He says that this tournament is the best in terms of organization. <laughs> he literally says every speech and it's very nice of him to say, but at some point he has to keep, stop saying this is the best tournament I go to in terms of organization because they're not all the best. Only one could be no, the best. I know it's, I mean, it's almost like you just need to rephrase it. Like hits another like world-class level. Cause I, I took it. I remember when, <laughs> when I was running various events like the uh, U S open and, and players would say that I'd be like this is the best one and i would take it on oh my god thank you and then they'd say it at another <laughs> event it felt like uh, someone else cheating on me uh, like it was uh, <laughs> now i was like wait was he lying to me <laughs> just <laughs> once he just once he should get up there and say you know what i won this tournament but man this event was poorly organized holy crap <laughs> That would yeah. be funny. If Muhammad ever get back in the trophy uh, range, we might get some real. So speaking of last, we had almost close because Muhammad El-Shrabagi has been so solid this year. Like no freakouts, no conspiracy theories. Voices in his head are very quiet right now. All is good with Muhammad. Hang on a minute. Did you not watch the French? Did you not watch the Open de France? Uh, remind me. It seems so. It's so long he, ago. He went off about the organization that the fact. Oh, about yeah. the, oh yes, about the scheduling yeah, yeah. and all that. But if you see that, like that has been a topic in every sport recently. So maybe Muhammad was on 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 the on the vanguard of that. But in this one, but that's normal stuff. That's normal Muhammad. I'm talking about like the like people who are out to get me. Muhammad. I'm talking about. <laughs> so in Singapore, in the quarterfinal, it's the start of the second game. A young man was in the front right wall. If you're looking at the right wall eating potato chips or crisps, as you guys call them in England. And Mohammed stopped the match and complained about it. He said he was chewing his potato chips too loudly. <laughs> that's it. That's one of two things. Either the atmosphere was so dead that there was no po- nobody watching or Mohammed's hearing is just something superhuman. It, it makes me think, like, how does he ever play at the TOC? How does he ever survive at the TOC with all the stuff that's going around? The referee was funny. He said, I could stop him from moving, but I can't really control his chewing or something like that. <laughs> so it was pretty funny. <laughs> it's worth watching because like even the announcers, I think it was Vanessa and Foster. Was he the other? Uh, uh, Paul, was the other Paul, Paul the Hornsby. He's very good, by the way, Paul Hornsby. He's a great guy. Yeah, yeah great in Yorkshire. Very good friend with Lee Beachall from the PSA. He was a good player himself. Shock, sh- shocking. I wonder how he got the job as the PSA TV announcer. Uh, I think okay. he, won a, he won a competition or something. You had to send your, your personal <laughs> commentary in and, yes. and he got the gig. Yes, I'm sure exactly that's how that worked. <laughs> All right, moving on. Moving on. Bill, Bill, that's not fair. They go through an extremely rigorous vetting process. It takes years to forge the top echelon like PJ and Joey. It, point. Case in point right here, Bill. Thank you. <laughs> I understand. And, say no more. Needless say no more. to say, it's going to be a very long time before we hear you out there. Oh, I, I, uh, good reviews. All I'll say is the YouTube comment that's, that still sticks in my mind, and I do have it frame screenshotted that says, fire all of them and hire this guy while I was doing the exhibition match in Houston. Just FYI, that's what somebody commented. But moving on. But but Bill, I, does it, or I should ask PJ, does it count if you created that <laughs> pseudo account and then you stated that? Does that add to it or not? Yeah, Bill C? You mean Bill C commenting? Yeah. <laughs> So I just want to quickly touch on a couple more of the the Challenger events that happened last week. And mostly, although there were some great matches, the Mile High Grizzly Bourbon Open in, in Denver, Colorado, the Mile High Squash, great final. Andrew Douglas beat Cesar Salazar in the final in 73 minutes. I'm sorry, in, the in, the, yeah. in the semis, I apologize, in 73 minutes, 11-9, 11-9, 9-11, 11-9. And then he beat Faraz Khan in the final, 11-9, 9-11. 12, 10, 11, 7. So five straight, no, six straight games of 9-11 scores for Andrew, which is pretty pretty crazy when it comes to the scoregami things, if you're into all those kind of things. But a great win for Andrew, a great win over Faraz Khan in the final. Yeah, and when we're looking at the mileage that players put on through these matches, like he had a 62-minute long in the quarterfinals, like you said, the 73-minute, and then the 91-minute finals. Like that is a lot of... Yeah. Mileage and by comparison to Faraz, who's just 24 minutes, 62, 39. So Play, a huge discrepancy at, there. At altitude. At altitude. 
So yeah. the ball would not stay down. <laughs> it, it went on. I watched a lot of that stream. It was pretty cool to watch, actually. Pretty good viewing. But Connor, as, <laughs> and I sent you this link last night. I had, did you have a chance to look at it? I did. So PJ, you probably don't know what we're talking about. So I sent Connor the link because I love watching the, I like watching the bigger events, trophy ceremonies, but a lot of times they're pretty well run. And at this point, the PSA, unless somebody just goes awry, it just goes off book. They're pretty much standard. But these challenger events and these, the satellite events, the trophy ceremony, I would say, Connor, I'm giving it right now clubhouse leader for trophy ceremony of the season. Thoughts? I think it, it creates its own category. <laughs> so there's <laughs> meaning that there's sort of overproduction, there's sort of disorganizations. And then I I like I didn't really I was like, is there more? <laughs> I didn't think that was it. I didn't, I thought that was just like I don't think the, the players thought, I don't think yeah, the players thought, know was it either. <laughs> I thought there was more coming. I thought there was like, wait a minute. So PJ, let me explain just briefly what happened and I will I mean, I'll put the I was link to say, say as much as you can without giving too much away because I think this is something that the viewers need to get a chance to actually watch. The, the viewers need to see it. The, the trophy ceremony, the, number one, the players never left the court after the match. So typically the hardest thing about a trophy ceremony at that level is finding the players after the match, right? Because it's usually at a small club, they get in the mix, they run to the shower and you're chasing them around. Not those two. They stayed on the court. They weren't quite sure what to do. And then randomly, some guy just showed up on the court with a microphone and just started talking out loud. He dropped two F-bombs. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Two F-bombs. As I said, breaking the previous record of F-bombs by two. Good on him. <laughs> what, though, in anger? Or what, what was the reason behind oh, no. it? I think Jubilee. Excitement. Oh, excitement. Or maybe the title. What's the title of the tournament? The Grizzly Bourbon Open? It may have something to do with that. <laughs> maybe. Maybe. Not sure. Well, I was also, he brought on, it actually looked like he had, it was like, hey, man, it's your turn to speak. And then he walked on with holding the, the double fisting. I didn't realize that was the trophy. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. So he came out and he said, he basically said, wasn't that effing awesome? Really loud into the microphone. And then afterwards he put, yes, talking about how difficult wasn't it being at altitude. He said, it's effing really hard to play at altitude, pointing that out to us. But the the other part was (laughs) there were no trophies. Instead, each player was presented with a bottle of bourbon. (laughs) (laughs) Both, Both players got a brief chance to speak. And then they handed back the microphone to the guy and he said, I think we should do this again next year. And he walked off court and the players were just standing there still, <laughs> not knowing what to do. Well, yeah. And then they looked at each other and said, we probably should get off court too. And that ended it. So I will put the link into the, into the social media promo for this and you have to watch it. It is the best. It is absolutely Bill, the best. Again, I think this is really actually starting to cement. I don't know whether this actually is going to help you get MC rolls or hurt you. <laughs> Like, but I do one sec. I I do want to take time because it's it's incredible that they did a glass court event running a PSA of this level because they've done glass court events, but it's more for as a fundraiser and exhibition. Right. So running PSA events and doing that like it really this was a 15k event, mm-hmm. but it has a big time feel because yep. it has a glass court, and yep. I think it gives such a great opportunity to these up and coming players, and you get the the encroaching on the next caliber levels like the Farazes and Andrew Douglas. So it's all joking aside, a huge credit to the tour. And yeah. we, th- we thank them for doing them, Bill. Well, what, <laughs> honestly, all if we're going to do an all joking aside, which I hate to do, I will do an all joking aside. I think it also screams for the need for some standardization of these tournaments of the lower, the challenger tour and the satellite tour tournaments where you need to have a proper host, a proper MC. You need to have proper etiquette on court and just things run smoothly. So it looks professional. So it's all fun and games. And it, it, it was, believe me, I love the chaos. I could watch that closing ceremony for the rest of my life. And if I never watch anything else, I'd be thrilled. But I think it does cry for, there needs to be a little bit of uh, standardization, a little bit more professionalism for these. Because I've been to a few of them and some are run really well and some are absolute chaos. And you're chasing players around, trying to find referees and things like that. So I think it was more of a case of that. But that, that, be, that being said, I really enjoyed it. <laughs> So lastly, let's just talk quickly on the London Open. And I only have this is because Hamza Khan beat James Wilstrop in that tournament, which was like a coming out party for Hamza Khan. I know we do. When I say we, I know I do make fun of him and the old age, the age discrepancy on this podcast often. So I won't do that here. But it was just interesting. He beat Wilstrop. And after the first game, they made him put on glasses in the tournament where he played his first two matches with no glasses on speaking of the standardization of, of tournaments at that level 
played the first his first two matches with no glasses on. The first game against Wilstrop with no glasses on before they finally made him put glasses on in game two. He did end up going on to win and beat Wilstrop, but just it's just funny to watch that kind of stuff happen on the professional level. What was the reason for the glasses wearing? Was he done it's, because he's a junior? Yeah, no, it's correct. Okay. Uh, under the age of 19, any player competing on the PSA World Tour has to wear glasses. Right. And it's just so, funny because... So be, if you be look cut. at Orphy, yeah. like she's always wearing glasses, yeah. right? True, but it's just it's more funny in Hamza's case because there was the controversy about whether he was of age at the Junior Worlds yeah, that he won this past summer. That was, yeah. And there he is uh, not wearing glasses and people are like, cool. And then they made him put glasses on. Wait a minute, did he become a junior again? <laughs> So it was, that was the controversy. But the other part was that Adrian Waller won the tournament and we got to see Adrian Waller smile twice, which is two more times than I've seen Adrian Waller ever smile. <laughs> so shout out to Adrian. Do you know Adrian Waller at all? Peter? Not that well. No, just from watching him on, uh, on tour and, and seeing him play over the years. Very skillful left-hander, um, very talented, a lot of ability. Um, just seemed to lack that real dogged fight and aggression. And... You just assume somebody of 6'2 in stature, built the way that he is, he would have a bit more of a physical presence. But I'd, as a fellow lefty, I think technically he's very sound. He's a, a good player. And I, I just feel that he's a player that could do better than he has done so far because there's no shortage of talent with him. Interesting. I just He never looks happy. That's, the only, that, that's my only watching him on court. He never looks like he's having fun. No, he comes from Essex in England. <laughs> is that a thing? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> is that an Essex? Is that something that people in England yeah, understand kind what of you're talking about? There? The people back in post-war days, people got kicked out of London and uh, they got sent down to Essex. So <laughs> could be one of the reasons. Yeah. <laughs> he, he is on the national team. He is playing in the world. Yeah, he, he's one of the best players in the UK right now. So listen, right. don't discount England from featuring in that world championships. Mohamed, Marwan, Adrian. There's... Oh, did, did, have yeah. they come out with all the squad yet? Has yeah. Egypt named their squad? Um, I'm not sure. Egypt could probably name three squads, couldn't they? An A, B and a C team. But no, I don't know if all the countries have been released. I'm not sure. No, I was, and I'm glad you brought it up because I did want to, touch on this too with the the men's world team champ, championship coming up in about a month from now a little bit right. less than that which will be exciting first time hosted since 2019 when it was here in washington dc in the united states but it's going to be hosted in new zealand so obviously the person with covid that postponed it but no i did not see any information about the squads or the draws or anything so that'll be exciting and i can't wait to see that because like you said pj england's squad is gonna who was really much you can't ever really count them out from a team event because they really rise to the occasion. Yeah. They often outperform their seating. Yeah. But now with the addition of Marwan and Muhammad, this is their contender. Yeah. yeah, without a doubt. So who's so Egypt, obviously Ali, a healthy Ali is going to be playing number one for Egypt. So Asal, I would assume, you would assume by rankings, he would be number two. And who would be number three? Who would play number Tarek. three right now for Tarek. Tarek, Tarek would be the number three. Interesting. So yeah, be curious to but, see what the battle is if England does play Egypt. Hopefully they will face each other to see the Sherbagi brothers playing against their home country. Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't know the politics of it all, but I know that certain players are out of favour with the federation in Egypt. So selection could be interesting. But if you go off the rank to put Egypt down as heavy favourites, but that in, in previous world championships, it hasn't always been the highest ranked three players that have played. So there's a few variables with that. Yeah, that I was going to build on that too, PJ, saying, and Egypt in particular has always had, it's not transparent or clear how they go about making their selection process. And I think now what's very evident, because it's been a long time since Mohammed and Marwan. Marwan, thank you. Ever represented Egypt. So I think that added to the confusion. But yeah, it'll be interesting to see who, who comes through here this time. I have a feeling that Egypt is not going to take... There's always that thought, hey, Asal, because of his issues on the tour, maybe we don't want him representing our country. But I have a feeling because, strictly because Marwan and Mohammed are playing for England, that Egypt is not going to fiddle around. It is going to be like, look, Asal is going to be on this team. We're not going to throw Jasuki out there. We're not going to throw Solomon out there. We're going to play our yeah, yeah. Yeah. number of players who would still represent well, but can lose, right? Where Asal, Farag, if they're on, aren't going to lose. They just aren't. 
So I don't think Egypt will take a chance on that. But, uh, but yeah, looking forward to that coming up in December. We'll do a preview of that because that's always an exciting event and always a lot of fun to watch. And the closing ceremony is always a debacle, which is uh, <laughs> always something that we look forward to. Let's get to the end of our PSA segment here. The first quarter of the PSA season's over, the end of this month. So it started September, October, November. Just talk about guys on the women's side. I have a few things. Uh, to me, the biggest story on the women's side right now, besides Sherbini's dominance, is Gohar missing. Right. So Noren Gohar has been pretty much absent from the tour since the beginning of the season. She last year at this time, she had won twice and was runner up twice. So that's a big hole in, in tournament draws. And it, it's we saw Nella Gillis just win a gold tournament. Right. And I'm not saying she didn't deserve it, but not having those draws is a big deal. The other story on the women's side is El Shabini. Last year, she had only won once. And this year, she's already won three times in the first quarter. To me, those are the two biggest stories on the women's side. I would agree with most of that. I think you can't ignore the, 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 the bursting on the scene of Amina Orfi. What she's doing is absolutely terrific so far. Uh, she's causing a lot of issues for a lot of the top players. Another thing that I'm really happy to see is the return of uh, Siva Subramanian, the, the mm. Malaysian, who had the sort of near-death experience with the car crash, and she's now coming back reaching the latter stages and also taking she had a good win against Gohar in uh, in Singapore, which would be a big confidence booster for her. So it's great to see her back on the tour. But um, I'm looking forward to the, the remaining three quarters of the season because the way things have, have panned out already, I think we're seeing a lot of shuffling around and a lot of movement, still with the domination of the top three pretty much. But this chasing pack coming up behind, Tina Gillis now in the mix, working with Greg Gautier. She's doing some good things out there scoring some big wins of her own. So there's, I think it's all to play for, and it's going to make for a, a very exciting run-up to the World Tour Finals at the end of the season because of the unpredictability of what we've seen so far. But again, I just love the fact that Shabini is working with Greg because she's he's brought some discipline into her game. And... When you watch her play, it's the highest level of women's squash that I've ever seen. So it's brilliant. Yeah, the the rankings, as we talked about, the top three are pulling away Gohar, Sherbini, and Hamami. But the rankings are interesting. And I don't know, and Connor, you probably know how they work, and we won't have to get into the minutiae, but my favorite player on the tour, Tomato Ho, has not had the best year ever. Let's let's. I'm the biggest Ho in the world, Ho fan in the world. Let's say, sorry, I misspoke. That uh, she lost in the second round in Paris and the second round in Singapore, and this week she jumped up from 32 to 26, with no other results for the season. <laughs> Keep it up, Tomato. Keep it up. That's all. That's all I have to say. On the men's side, I think there is one story. Right? It's besides Assal and the suspension and the drama. There's Ali Farag. Ali Farag, as we talked about earlier playing at the highest level a man has played. And I'm going to throw it to you, PJ. When, and we may have talked about this. You just haven't been on a podcast in so long. I forget what your answer was. How Ali's playing right now, can you compare it to any other player in your time following the PSA or playing on the PSA tour? I still feel that golden period. Jahangir, Janshir, Rodney, Ditz. They would have Ali's number. I genuinely believe that. I think the level that those guys played at was the the best it's ever been. And we'll and listen. Ho- hopefully, we'd see people coming close to that. But right now, I don't see that. But Ali, his his domination that we're seeing now, he's you've got to put him in the mix with a Rami, very different type of player. But a fit Rami would every time he went into an event, it was a, a given that he was going to win. We've not had that for, for quite some time. So I would say he's the definitely, after Rami, he's the best of this, the last sort of 25, 30 years. Since Jangir and Janshu and those guys stopped, I'd say that Ali's up there alongside Rami. With, from a domination standpoint, I don't think people have come close to that level. I agree with the people back in your era, like the... They were the top guys, like the women's game today. Like they were just so clear yeah. that it was an entrenched top, yeah. right? Rami definitely was unstoppable. No one knew how to handle him. And I always wonder what would happen if he didn't have the injury. But he, his time at world number one was really limited by comparison. Yeah. I think that Nick Matthew really stood out that he he somehow always managed a bunch of wins. Yeah. 
and everyone that was clipping in his heels, he just still managed to be maintain world number one, keep the pedal to the metal and stay ahead of everyone. Ali's now this he, he, a combination of a Nick Matthew and Rami, where like he has the physical prowess. He's almost been unstoppable in the past year. We'll see how long that that reign goes. So I, he see, he seems to be distinguishing himself as an entrenched number one in a different way. And I don't think given the level of the game these days, it's going to be possible to get the, the Jahangir Khan level. I just, yep. that's impossible. But he's really, see, to me, carving out a new path mm. of a new kind of world number one. There's just very quickly, if you look at Farag as a player, if a lot of people have made comparisons to him and Jan Khan from a movement standpoint and an ability to read the game. But I just feel that those top guys would have been able to expose Ali from a technical standpoint. And that's why if you look at Mustafa Assel when he has a bit of joy over Farag, it's because he injects such a pace that he can break down or expose Farag's flaws in his swing. That would be the area for me, Bill, if you look at where you would put Farag from a level standpoint compared to those, the top four in all time, of all time for me. That was where Farag may just fall that little bit shy. Now, these other players who are on the tour right now, yeah. so do they know that's what needs to be done to beat Farag? That's the pace is what you're talking about and the power. Are there any other players on the tour right now besides Asal who you think have that or, or can harness that and, and do what Asal does? If you look at the players that Farag doesn't particularly enjoy playing, Tarek Moman, Faraz Dasuki, uh, Abulgar, they're the kind of players who do have that electric, I mean, that electric speed and that burst and power onto the ball, ability to take Farag out of the rhythm that we so often see him in. And that is where Farag feels most vulnerable. When you look at somebody like a Diego and Elias, and now with Paul Cole, they obviously play, a, comparatively speaking, a faster pace than we do. But it's not that same burst of pace and uncomfortable pace that Farag really does not enjoy. So that's that. They're the kind of players that, as I said, your Abulgars and your Dasukis and, and your Tariks, they create most issues for Farag. Paul Cole, credit and, and for the US Open, he did a brilliant job there. I'm taking nothing away from Paul Cole, US Open champion, terrific achievement. Farag was on the back of a pretty extensive run of events. Yeah, nobody would have guessed Carl won. Would no, that. no, and he won no. that day. He made some technical changes and he worked and thoroughly deserved the win. Hopefully Paul will build on that and, and figure out how to beat Farag, but it's the kind of game that needs to be very powerful and dynamic and explosive. So do you think Farag could, can, can rectify what we're calling euphemistically his shortcomings and even bring his game to a higher level? I, I do, yeah, I, I, absolutely, absolutely. There's, <laughs> that's the thing with Farag, there is still room for improvement. Um, if he can, his movement is defies a lot of what the coaching staff would say today. Farag's quite long and languid with his movement. He swings quite loopy and quite floppy, and he flaps a lot, not particularly high above shoulder height on the volley. That's why Paul Cole gets a lot of joy with using plenty of height on the front wall to put him into those awkward areas. But Farag can definitely strengthen up in those particular areas, maybe compact or shorten the swing a touch. But it's not going to be easy because it's a natural swing and movement thing that it, it works for him. So can he do it? Yes. Will he do it? I'm, I'm not so sure. But does he need to do it? If you look at what he's achieving right now, the smallest of changes could have an impact on him but i think it'll be just more of the same for farag yeah scary thought him getting better and better to be honest yeah. with you i, I almost root, root against that for as a fan wanting to see a little bit more parity in the men's game and not I wanting mean, to see if, him if you can every if tournament. you can suddenly get farag to not just get onto the ball as early as he does the way that he does but if he could do that with a little bit more aggression and a bit more power then you're talking about the complete article. Then you're talking about your Jahangirs and your Janshirs and that in you're in that realm. And on a traditional court, is Ali more susceptible on a traditional court, do you think? 
I don't seem I don't seem susceptible no. anywhere. No, I don't think it really matters. No, no I don't. Yeah. I just think okay. he's he's so versatile and adaptable. He can figure out a way wherever he plays. It just I think now the way that it is at the moment, he's creating this domination. It needs to be him slightly off of his best, and the other players playing at the very top of their game for him to lose because he's got that bit of an edge. I don't see any reason we won't be having the same conversation after Hong Kong coming up, to be honest with you, for better or worse. So moving on to the CSA, the College Squash Association, just a bit of a wrap up. We had a great conversation with Joey Rejo last week. Unfortunately, fortunately, wrote Joey, they started the season, they beat Hobart, and then they went to Trinity. And I think, I'm wondering if people from Trinity were listening to that podcast and were like, you know what, let's just go out there and, and let's really beat Joey's team really badly because that's exactly what happened. <laughs> but uh, Yeah, but that was, he would have called that himself, right? For, he, no. He, I for really, sure. one of the things I actually appreciated and the insight he shared is when he's setting the schedule, he likes, who's the toughest competition we can face? Let's get out there and, and get our teams tested against that. So. No, it was inspiring listening to him. I, I was inspired actually uh, by his cooking talk. Also, Connor, I just, just an, as an aside, I, I went uh, on Friday night. I had some friends over and they were just having some bourbons out on the front deck because it was a, a mild night for November in Connecticut. And I said, hey, do you guys want to stay for dinner? And I uh, whipped up a, uh, a pork chop dinner. Um, with a little bit of an incident because I had, I think three bourbons before I started cooking, I sliced the crap out of my finger with a knife while chopping some vegetables Oof. and blood spurted everywhere, including into the pork chops that were cooking in the frying pan. So is that what halal is? I don't really know. Is that what halal is where you're cooking with blood? I, Does anybody I know? I have no idea. I, 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 I don't either, but it will be the blood of the chef. Okay. So I, and I just, it was a little bit of blood, but I'll tell you what, it was the best pork chop dinner I ever cooked. So I'm not sure. I'm not sure going forward, well, whether I'm going to bloodlet myself before I cook. Please, please all the time. tell and me I, your guests did not eat the pork chops doused in blood from your finger. Doused, I think is a strong word, a spurt, like a spurt of blood. That, that is arguably the most disgusting thing I've heard on a podcast. Don't ever invite me around for dinner. What was I going to do? I was going to throw them away. Yeah, you throw them away, you order a pizza. <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're, sizzling, they're sizzling in oil. They're not just like a little drop of blood. Bill, you're gross. Well, yeah, but it has nothing to do with that. <laughs> but either, either way, that's an aside. Let's get back to CSA talk. So, where were we? Sorry, where were we? <laughs> where were we? CSA, following the women on the women's side anyway, it's just an impressive week from UPenn. Uh, the UPenn women beat the numbers four, six, and seven teams in the country this weekend. Qu quite an achievement. They beat Stanford, beat UVA, and beat Drexel in some really outstanding matches. And I, I dug deep uh, into the into the scoreboards. And I just want to give a shout out because I know that um, you know, some of these players don't get the the recognition. But the number one player for, for UPenn, my new favorite player, Chicken Malakaha, won all her matches. She won in five games over Drexel at number one. She won in four games. She beat Megan Best, who is, if next to Simi Chan of Columbia, probably maybe the number two player in, in, in on the CSA women's side, beat her in four games and then beat the Stanford number one in four. And the other shout out I want to give is Avni Anad, the number five player, at Penn, five game win in one hour. This is all in one weekend. Five game win in one hour of UVA. Five game win over Stanford and four games over Drexel at the at the number five spot. So a solid weekend for those two players. And just for Jack Wyant, you know, when you're overshadowed by the juggernaut that is Gilly Lane's UPenn men's team, nice to see the women's team getting a little shine, in my opinion, anyways, because Gilly does get a lot of the spotlight. Okay, so the other on the women's side that I want to bring up, this is why I want PJ's PJ to jump in because I know PJ over and although you ha have spent the last three weeks in the United States. You probably haven't been following the CSA that closely. Harvard women. Yeah. Give me a, give me a guess what Harvard women's record is after the first two months of the season, first month of the season. You mean just win loss? Yeah. Just oh, win God. loss. Um, seven and oh. Nope. Close. Very close. They're oh and oh. They haven't played yet. Oh. Harvard women have not played a match yet. From what I understand, the reason it's, Almost December. Yeah. All the other teams, Penn has played six matches. Most of the bigger teams besides Princeton, who we've talked about, have played quite a few matches. Is it, I think it's a thing of these teams don't want to go up there and spend the money and spend hotel nights in Boston and get walloped in 20 minutes. Yep. These lower ranked teams, right? Yep. The, the Ivy League teams are going to have to play them, but they can't. They have not played a match. Zero and zero at this time of year. Just incredible to me. 
I had no idea. That's ridiculous. I know they've been playing a lot of, well, they had the scrimmages, obviously, and then they play some challenge matches, but no on the road. No, nothing. no dual matches. They, they, they won't go on the road. It doesn't seem to go play anybody else. And the men even have only played two matches, both against club teams, uh, Brown University club team and Northeastern, which is right down the street. So I don't know if it's a fact of Harvard won't travel anywhere. But it seems like a fact, unfortunately, it's a budgetary thing where these teams are not going to go up to Harvard, these lower level teams, and get just absolutely waxed by Harvard women. I understand that, but that's not really the kind of mentality and attitude you want as a team. You need to get exposure to these top teams to find out where you're falling short, surely. I agree. As I, I think I, I was texting with a college coach this weekend about it, and I said, there's probably somewhere a Smith graduate who's 30 years old who, like, talks fondly about getting crushed by Amanda Sobey when she was a senior in college because it's like Amanda Sobey's one of the top players in the world right now. Hey, cool. Hey, I beat, I lost to her. I played her in college. Yeah. But there's none of that happening right now, which is, to me, it's a loss to the players for sure. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. I don't understand that. Um... Yeah. These, it's never quite clear how the scheduling goes on. And I know with the Ivy leagues, there's actually a, a pretty set regiment that they have to play each other and play all the Ivies. So there's, they're one of the more restrictive leagues by comparison to other leagues that you really match your caliber. And yes, you have to play your own, your own league matches. But the, the what, when I'm looking at this, you're talking, there's three non Harvard matches here, or sorry, three non Ivy league. If I'm scanning this quickly, maybe four. Yeah, and I recall something that Princeton was doing the same kind of thing last year. So. Yeah, a robust schedule compared to Harvard right now. <laughs> robust. <laughs> I think it's fair to say, Bill, it's above yours and I pay grade, but uh, curious to understand. 100%. On the men's side, I just want to a, a rare Bill Buckingham apology. I'm going to apologize to the interim league commissioner of the CSA, our, my colleague and friend, Harry Smith. So Harry Smith took over for Dave Pullman when Dave Pullman moved on and went back to Columbia. I couldn't think of a better person to be selected for that. But that being said, when I saw what the match of the week was, so the CSA puts out the match of the week, right? Which basically that's the one everyone needs to turn it, tune into. And I was expecting it to be possibly one of the, the Penn women matches, just one of the bigger teams. And guess who it was? It was Colby versus MIT. Oh, interesting. Yeah, interesting. Nope. nope. No buy it. it was, I had to look up because I, I would, went. I looked up the the bio of Harry on the CSA website when he got named the commissioner just to see where he went to school because I I didn't know. I was like maybe he just a typical squash player went to Harvard went to Yale. No, Harry went to Colby. Stunning, just stunning, and they were the match of the week. Just absolutely <laughs> crazy. I just I don't know how that works, but uh, I apologize to Harry because in the end it turned did turn out to be the match of the week. Colby <laughs> beat MIT. And some of the matches were just crazy. Four of the matches went to five games. Three of the matches were over an hour, just back and forth. It was the match of the week. So, Harry, if you're listening, and I know you are, I apologize. Bill, very rarely do I, Bill was wrong. Hashtag Bill was wrong. You mean that you admit, that, that you'll admit that you're wrong? That's a difference. Versus PJ and I have a, 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 ta- a sub conversation going about the tallies. Just another one. Another on one. On curiosity, on who say so, was it match of the week? Because I actually saw Harry at the Drexel Princeton match at Drexel and was privy to one of the best college matches I've ever seen. Great. Thomas match. Rossini matches were tied two all. Actually, Princeton were four three down when Thomas went on. Thomas Rossini was two love down. So Princeton at this stage are two love and four three down to Drexel. Mm-hmm. The match ended up leveling up four all. Thomas then pulled it back to four all, to two all in his match and then uh, narrowly come through in a now biting fifth. So that would have been one heck of a match to be. That, that was the previous week though. So this is the match of this week. Ah, there you go. So yes, yes absolutely. Put this way. The Princeton Drexel match could be the match of the year if you watch that. And I followed that. I wasn't. It wasn't streamed anywhere, so I watched. I followed it on on Club Locker yeah. and fo- followed the match, and it was just nail biting. And what I was hoping when it came down to the Rossini match, because that match went an hour and twenty minutes, so I kept seeing the score was like nine seven, and it, it wouldn't move. So I didn't know whether the guy who was keeping score, which is typically one of the teammates of either of the players, yeah, was, was yeah. just so into the match he forgot hitting to hit the scoreboard. But then it jumped up to 10. And then typically what happens in a college match, especially that it comes down to the last one, is somebody wins 
and the guy who's holding the score pad forgets that he's supposed <laughs> to put that 11th point in. And then you, overnight you wake up and it's still 10 to 7. But uh, kudos to whoever did that because he did put the, uh, the 11 in and uh, just a great win for Thomas Rossini and just a spectacular win for Princeton at Drexel for sure. Yeah. The match I mean, the, the atmosphere, the, the sooner we get these matches live on Squash TV, the better because not only is the standard improving of these college players, some of these are now pursuing a career on the Pro Tour afterwards, but the just the the atmosphere and the hostility of the crowds and the noise and everything that comes with it just makes for really interesting viewing and it's a great spectacle for anybody if ever anybody watching if ever you get a chance to go along and watch any of these college matches just go do it because it is a great night of squash and you, you get so up close and personal with a lot of these you know top somewhat semi-professional players now and it's it was a very exciting night of squash, I will say. Yeah, it, it, we'll, we'll yeah. keep an eye on it. if we do see Colby being the match of the week consistently. Maybe somebody maybe has to nudge Harry and say, you know what, corruption does start at the top. So maybe hold off on that, but we'll see. We'll <laughs> see. But be, it was just one match, and he was correct about it. Good job. Harry, you're doing a great job. That's really what we're trying to say. Connor, anything to wrap it up? Well, it's nice to get another one in the books. And PJ, thank you for jumping back on. A level of sanity has been missed by myself <laughs> and the viewers. Thanksgiving coming up, PJ. Do you guys celebrate Thanksgiving in England? Uh, we do not celebrate Thanksgiving. However, we, my email inbox has been inundated with Black Friday sales. And we're already playing Christmas songs in all the stores and shops over here now christmas is just around the corner coming on thick and fast but obviously no during my time in the u.s i was privy to many a thanksgiving meals which were very similar to my christmas dinners back over in the uk and one of my favorite days of the year in the u.s that was for sure but i won't be party to any of that this year unfortunately i'll be watching from a distance i may be sprinkling a little blood in my turkey if you want to come over i'll get back to you on that one <laughs> All right, guys. It's Thanks, been fun. Guys. Appreciate it. Soon, PJ, guys. great. Thanks for listening to another show on SQR Squash Radio. We really do appreciate you taking the time to listen. And we have a quick ask. In an effort to help us grow, if you have a quick minute, please consider sharing an episode with a friend who might be interested or leaving a rating on any of the platforms you listen to your podcast. It would mean a lot to me and the rest of the team. Thanks so much and have a great day.